It's 2020 and currently the world is experiencing a crisis like never seen before. The coronavirus has rapidly spread across the globe, collapsing industries, hospitalising thousands of people and resulting in many fatalities. It is now that we've decided to start the SCARDI podcast to help those in the financial services navigate this very uncertain future. In this week's episode, we talk to Robert Brooker, Head of Fraud and Forensics at PKF Littlejohn, and also the chair of the London Fraud Forum. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. So welcome, Robert. Um, Thank you, Nick, very much for inviting me. Look forward to it. Good. Um, so, Robert, I mean, the, the reason why I, I uh, or one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk to you is that um, you have you know, great knowledge of procurement fraud, um, particularly um, in, you know, earlier in your career, working, I think, for Transport for London as, or London Transport. Um, there has been a lot of, um, you know, headlines um, in the press about uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, and obviously the race for countries across the world, governments to gather in PPE. Um, and it just seems to me um, a, an, an area that's ripe for fraud. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not suggesting that the, the recent headlines around the, the, the shipment uh, that the, the UK sent the RAF to collect from Turkey had anything fraudulent going on about it, but certainly it seems an area where, you know, with the pressure that people are under, um, that you know some of the controls may be um, relaxed at this critical time. What are your thoughts on that? Nick, thank you very much. Couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a procurement fraud um, kind of my area, and you're quite right. I spent 10 years at Transport for London as head of fraud, and as you can imagine, um, a 13 billion pound organisation with a majority of servicing goods that they're buying in. So fraud has always been in my blood for 25 years now. And procurement has been in my blood for certainly those 10 and if not longer. The problem we've got is generally speaking is ultimately a crisis brings on needs and requirements. So here we are in a situation whereby people are trying to lay their hands on PPE and whether that be masks, whether that be gloves, ventilators, whatever it might be, everybody is jumping on the bandwagon. There's a quick buck to be made here. And unfortunately for all of us that are procuring, the moment there's a quick buck to be made, the sharks are hovering. And the minute the sharks are hovering, not just in the UK, obviously you refer to um, Turkey, we all know the Chinese as well. Turkey and China are the largest producers of PPE. But unfortunately, the middlemen in this country trying to obtain that PPE aren't necessarily the right people. They're not right distributors, they're not going through the right processes to actually create it. So what you have is a two-way kind of scenario is that you've got the trusts in the hospitals, for instance, private organisations, even Transport for London coming out just yesterday and saying that everyone's going to have to wear a face mask of some description whilst travelling on their transport. So there they are needing to get hold of PPE quickly. What happens? We go to people that aren't on our supply chain. We don't know people necessarily on our supply chain who provide PPE. That's the other issue. Everybody now is a PPE supplier, aren't they? It doesn't matter what field you're in, everybody's in it. To the extent I know of a company who produced glass up here in the northwest where I live. And actually, they're because of their a large um, client base of theirs, is the hospitality sector. And clearly, they're going to require PPE when they return to work. So I know they've been sourcing in excess of 5 million pieces of PPE from throughout the world. The problem you've got initially 
is ensuring what actually is the documentation around the, the garments they have. Is it genuine? Are the garments worth anything on paper? What do they look like? So basically, they're dealing with people they've never dealt with. So from a procurement perspective, we go back to some very basics that we all use here, is know your customer, know your supply chain. What due diligence has been taken out on these people? How about internally when we are making purchases? Do we have the right people in the right jobs now? We've all gone through furloughed. Great to see it resurrected today for another four months. I think that would be excellent for, um, for the economy. But actually, do we have the right people to approve the invoice? Do we have the right people to approve the actual purchase in the first place? We haven't gone through a tender process to obtain this stuff. It's cash buying, I believe. People are literally paying up front cash to get these goods in, in return for what might be, unfortunately, either no goods at all or, or goods that just aren't worth the paper they're written on. They could be completely counterfeit and serve no purpose. You and I would be better with a piece of A4. So it really is a, a perfect storm, if you like. You have this sudden rush, this sudden need, um, where people are going out for products that they don't know, and that brings them into an unknown or new supply chain. Um, and I think the furlough point is, a, is an absolutely fascinating issue because, as, as you rightly say, um, and also you know, trying to predict the cycle of how this has developed and the fact that, you know, as you say, we, you know, we, the, the UK is going, uh, attempting to go back to work on, on Wednesday, uh, the 13th of May, and there are going to be a lot of businesses that now need PPE. Um, and certainly those people that were perhaps in that role procuring for, for organisations may have been put out to furlough. And we know that it's a three week period they can't work for. Um, uh, and so it's be difficult to bring them back. And you may well cover with that particular, uh, with another particular person from the organisation. It does sound like a perfect storm. And Nick, I totally agree with you. I think half the problem here is some of these purchases, obviously people have been trying to get their hands on PPE for a number of weeks now. You alluded to the fact we've been trying from Turkey as UK government and we, can't, we couldn't get it immediately. People have been trying to get it and unfortunately I'm not sure we'll actually realise the impact of the potential fraud until people do return to work from tomorrow or even thereafter in the weeks coming, whereby they then realise actually where are our goods, do we have the correct volume, do we have the correct certification with, that good, with those goods. Are they actually genuine articles? And how about the process? What went on while we were all sitting at home working? Yes, sitting at home working's worked, doesn't it? It's kept UK going, let's be honest about it. We don't need the big plush offices at the moment. We're all sitting wherever we might be, not only in the UK, but abroad too. That's working, it all looks fine. But actually, we've got the furlough issue, we've got people potentially being made redundant. What do we have in terms of approval processes? What do we have in terms of schemes of delegation? Do we have the right people approving the right amount and volume of goods that are being purchased? And what does the accounts department look like? Are we taking any notice of the invoice that's received? Is it all online? Are we getting invoices at all? Are we just paying up front? We don't actually know the due diligence here. What are we doing? Who are we dealing with? What worries me is the further down the chain, who are these companies and what are we actually potentially what is that money going towards, i.e. the worst case scenario, counter-terrorism, activity, etc. 
unfortunately, the crisis will always bring that on. But I'd like to think we could be a little bit tighter with it and make sure our controls are in place. Unfortunately, we haven't got the time to do that. And, and what do you sort of what do you tend to see um, when, when you're looking at organisations? And, and obviously, I'm sure you're dealing with organisations organizations that are you know, very different in scale. In terms of that that sign-off and that procurement process, you know, what is the depth in terms of the the people that are looking after that? Um, it, you know, are there you know sign-offs that that may be there for convenience, you know, to to help out that may not necessarily have the expertise in place, for example. I mean, what sort of things do you see in the sign-off process? This is it. In a normal circumstance, you would like to think you'd have somebody actually buy in separate from anybody making payment. So we'd have somebody buying the goods, who would have the knowledge, there would be a specification around what you require, you would ensure that the goods match that specification in accordance with UK law, generally speaking, um, making sure they reach ISO, whatever the requirement might be. Actually, what are we doing now? None of that probably. What we would like to see, somebody makes the purchase, somebody goes through a tender process, be it three quotes, be it an official tender document, Following that, we get the based upon technical capability and price, and then somebody can hold that tender, whether it's free quotes or a full process, make sure that we've got the right information, make sure that we've got the right goods that are being offered to us, and then we can make the purchase. Accounts then, obviously, a, a account would be set up, accounts would pay the right people, you would use a SAP or an Oracle, you'd have an approval process within there, and it certainly wouldn't be cash up front, let's be honest. I mean, it is fascinating because really, I think what you're, you're saying as a general theme is that time is really the enemy of fraud. And actually, we have this situation where, you know, we can't spend time because we have a, or certainly we had a situation that was developing so rapidly and so uncertainty that, that really any time that was spent was very, very adverse in terms of controlling, you know, this calamity that was enveloping the world. So it is quite an, an interesting juxtaposition that really, you know, when we think about processes and control process, people need time to scrutinise, to check, to do their due diligence. And this is really, you know, a very, very different environment for that to happen. Very, very challenging, I think, for control functions at this time. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, time is always of the essence for procurement anyway. Believe it or not, we're all in normal business as usual circumstances. We normally have a two or a three year contract with somebody. We get to the last minute, realize the contract's expiring, and we put in what's known as single source justification because I've run out of time. So we end up with this situation whereby people are saying, they're the only company that can do that work for us. We want to use them. Well, actually, guys, from a procurement perspective and from a fraud perspective, scrutiny and overview, you've had three years. You know the tender's coming up, but just single source justification very often is time eluded. So here we are in exactly the same boat, whereby we've got this time element and time causes panic, not only from our side, from purchasers, but also from producing it from those poor people on the ground that are requiring the PPE. You can imagine, we've all seen the unions and everything that are involved in this at the moment, um, particularly in the rail industry, saying they're not happy for their staff to return. The National Union of Teachers, obviously speaking out about teachers returning, potentially in two or three weeks time. And this is all around social distancing, which in line leads up to the PPE situation. 
So we have this thing where time is of the essence. People don't realize it. But what does that mean? The fraudsters know you are time as well. And they jump on this situation. This is literally a situation to them. We have our own red flags. We have our own kind of organization development plans and how we should deal with fraud. Don't, don't be disillusioned. These organized crime gangs have also got their own strategic view on this. They're working like mad. Where can we get in for this at the moment? What's the latest development from government? What's needed? So in the last 24, 48 hours, we've seen that need for PPE completely ramp up, even though it was still absolutely at the top of everyone's agenda. It's now ramped up even more, and the fraudsters will be on this now. They'll be trying to make them in sweat houses all around the world, making PPE of some description to feed out and feed that we're going to buy without undertaking, as you alluded to, Nick, any due diligence whatsoever, because we need to keep people PPE and covered and protect ourselves. And unfortunately, it's a false economy. We think we're getting a deal. We think we're getting it. PPE is going up by the day at the moment as we speak. I believe that it's completely just increasing and it had done up to now anyway. And then today, I believe PPE has gone through the roof in light <laughs> of the announcements yesterday. And, and also, I guess, you know, what is also another, you know, challenge for everybody is that when you broaden that potential customer base or that demand, the sophistication and knowledge of that customer base has to again decrease as well, because suddenly there's a whole load of new entrants coming into a field where, um, you know, that obviously there's been the expertise of the people in the NHS and so on and so forth that are used to buying this uh, type of equipment. But if, you know, if you are, you know, a school's trust, for example, that needs this for your cleaners, if you're the entertainment business that you mentioned, what experience do, can they have had of PPE? Now, obviously, everyone is becoming uh, a working from home, you know, expert, and I guess a PPE expert at a rate of knots. But it is an interesting situation that really there's, it, there's almost a sort of you know, cataclysmic amount of fuel being thrown towards the fraudsters at this point. It's very, very challenging. There what, is. What? And you and I know, go back to Cressy Triangle, the opportunity, etc. Here are the fraudsters on the other side of the coin, knowing full well that people are making these purchases without knowing exactly what they're buying or why. So we have both sides of that fence, whereby we have people producing it genuinely sometimes, and they are producing it genuinely, but it's not their expertise. They've seen the niche in the market for their industry. They're not making money in any other way. Let's be honest, we'll all see in a short while of time, the Burberry face masks um, completely being worn through North London. Um, sorry, Nina. Um, being worn through North London and people will be using them for other reasons to commit crime, etc. But the truth of that is, outside of the fence, trying to buy legitimately, we don't have the expertise and knowledge those producing and manufacturing the PPE certainly don't have the expertise and knowledge and they're jumping on this and creating a complete vacuum of uncertainty and unfortunately people are going to become victims of this fraud but they won't realise it for some time to come I don't think. I mean th this this must be the, the largest situation um, possibly outside of wartime I suppose when, when you've had a kind of mass procurement and probably never been so concentrated into to one area uh, or one particular set of product suite, if you like. I can only think of, you know, natural disasters that might have a, a similar effect where you, you need reconstruction rapidly 
and due to the nature of the disaster, you, your own manufacturing base might have been destroyed or, or, or hampered, for example. But it, it, is, it certainly is a unique situation. Um, it, looking outside of and away from, from um, you know, PPE and, and procurement, and you know, obviously the way that people are working now, what are some of your concerns about the, the work from home model, if, if you have any, or, or what do you think? Do you think this is a, you know, a positive new paradigm? But I think ma mainly from the fraud perspective. No, of course. I think there's two sides of that coin, isn't there? Let's be honest, the working from home. I think it's a completely different world we're going to see when we all return to whatever normality might be. Nick, I've got to be honest, from working perspective, I think people have become quite used to working at home. I think businesses are realising that there's a lot to be had from working from home um, in terms of overhead costings, in terms of staff well-being and etc. I think there's a lot of positives around it. Being the negative guy and the cynic that I am, having worked in fraud for so long, unfortunately, there are some issues around it that need to be managed and hopefully we'll learn uh, through these last couple of months and we're still learning now. One is around, obviously, we talked about it earlier on amongst ourselves, but one's internet and how secure are people's internet. How secure is it? Are we convinced that actually we're not going to be um, kind of bamboozled by those fraudsters that are trying to hack our own personal accounts? How secure are we working? The other is obviously things like Zoom and other um, like meeting hangups, for instance, or Teams. We've all read the stories in the press. People are being what they could Zoom bombed by pornographic images and what have you now. And unfortunately, that's ensuring you get your security in place in the same way we've got to ensure we've got firewalls on our own systems and that people have got the right um, firewalls on their own personal laptops, etc., working at home. So there's an area that I think is really open for fraudulent activity from a cyber perspective, is making sure that we are, we've got the right uh, equipment to work with, um, the equipment is secure, and also the actual internet connection and everything can't be hacked along the way. So that's actually the, the purpose of working at home and why people are doing it. Thereafter, I think from an accounts perspective, there's concerns. We talked briefly a moment ago around accounts and the fact of approval processes, how do they work? Um, we all have, whether it be Sage, whether it be Oracle, whether it be SAP, we've all got these systems that we're working within. Are the same controls in place from home? They should be, but actually the problem we've got at the moment is are the same people in place in those roles? Are they working? Have they been furloughed? Have they been made redundant? Do they have the right levels of authority to be signing off some of these invoices and payments? Now, obviously, through that, you also got the mandate fraud, i.e. sometimes known as bank diversion fraud. And that is whereby you receive notification from um, a company that, who you deal with, normally your top 10 suppliers. And what you receive is an email claiming to be from that supplier. Please note, we've changed their bank details from sort code ABC, account number ABC, and basically these are our new details all future invoices, could you please pay to here? Now, this isn't a new phenomenon, unfortunately. Bank mandate fraud's been going on for a long time. I remember back in the day in TFL, we received letters from our set of suppliers notifying us of a change of bank detail. How that's changed and developed with technology, <coughs> excuse me, is basically not only are they now receiving an email, they're now hacking the whole system, whereby it looks like it's come from your finance director until you right click on the email and realize it's a, a Gmail account or it's a, 
another um, Aon account or whatever, it's not actually the account you would expect it to be. Now, there are some things around that for which we can spot these. Um, from a preventative point of view, what should we be doing? Generally speaking, you'll notice the language or the grammar in these emails isn't what you would expect from your um, director of finance or from your chief exec saying, could you please pay this now? Or even for the change of bank account details. It's not always perfect English or perfect grammar. So I think it's important to make sure that we're reading these emails correctly. Right click on them to ensure where is it actually come from? Is it from a genuine source? But unfortunately, people are falling for it. And once again, similar to the PPE situation, the fraudsters are all over bank mandate fraud at the moment, sending out emails, jumping on people's um, accounts, and basically hoodwinking that situation so that they can receive the money. The money is, generally speaking, goes into an account that's not kept in the UK, and normally the monies are wire transferred immediately to jurisdictions we have no control over. So there's that side of it. My other is, I've heard quite a lot of stories and read a lot um, in the press, particularly LinkedIn or other social media for platforms, whereby people are working from home in terms of call centres. So I have concerns here around a call centre working at home, around data. Now, there's two things here. You and I know if you were to be burgled, you wouldn't any longer look to see whether they've taken your TV or your uh, VHS video recorder, so to speak. But we'd be looking for our identity documents. Do we have our passports? Do we have our insurance details? Do we have a utility bill? Or have they stolen them to claim a new identity? It's exactly the same with data. I have concerns, and there are organised gangs working in call centres now who are targeting call centres to harvest data from those people using these services. Look, we're in lockdown. Everyone was shopping online. Online shopping has gone through the roof. Absolutely through the roof. It's one of the industries that's doing well through this situation, which is great to hear. At least there's some positivity for those that can't work in the retail industry. But what that means is the fraudsters are there. They're hovering once again around this. So what's happening is we've got call centres taking orders, taking payment. Now, just from orders, forget the actual payment element of it. You probably have to give your name, your address, an email, a telephone number. That data's harvest. If you add into that your bank account details, wow, what do we get now? They are now building a, a complete portfolio of details of people that are spending money online. Then what they're going to do, harvest that data and then farm that data within the dark web, ensuring that that goes to people who then use those details to make payments and unfortunately um, take money from people's accounts. And that is happening more and more as we speak because of the increase of online activity during the COVID-19 situation. So really what the situation has done is, is really, it's quite an enabler for insider risk, if you like. Now, along with procurement, the insider threat is one of my complete red flags and concerns. You're quite right. Um, there's two sides to this. One is, first of all, in the contact center, in normal operations, you would have PCI DSS, payment card industry data security standards, which prevents people from taking mobile phones in to the call center or pens or paper. We can't manage that and have no control over that in the home. So therefore there's an enabler in the first place is some of our controls have been dropped. The minute our controls are dropped, the guard is undone and the red flag should be waving because there are the concerns of fraud. 
And the enabler, as you rightly say, Nick, is literally for them to commit fraud online in the quickest possible way. Now, <laughs> enablers are always there. They're always going to be there. We accept that. We understand that. But it's what controls we have in place to prevent against those enablers. And I just, I'm not convinced that we're all, as an economy at the moment, probably as stringent around the controls in place and recognising what their red flags might be and what the circumstances of dropping some of those controls could be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I think there's, there's a certain amount of leeway. I mean, we've discussed it on previous SCADI podcasts that, that to just get the you know, business continuity going in a situation such as this, there is some justification for relaxing some of the controls just to get business to continue. But it is so important to, to reinstate those as soon as there is some business stability, which I think is the phase that we are in now. You know, everyone is, this isn't actually a new way of working now to people. Everyone's got comfortable very, very quickly. Everyone's got uh, up a very steep learning curve. Um, and so I think it's certainly right that we are talking about, you know, revisiting those controls now and making sure that they are robust and, and as in place as, as possible. Um, I it's think interesting, you, you raise a very... It? Sorry. Sorry, it's interesting. How many people during the time of lockdown have realigned their fraud risk assessments? How many people have actually had a look to suggest that the, the impact and the likelihood of some of these events occurring has increased dramatically overnight? But actually, are we pinpointing that? What are we doing then? We have to, I agree with you, it is a risk assessment. We have to allow some of these controls to go to ensure that we can still trade and ensure that we're still making money as a business. We know that, we understand that. But actually, it is the likelihood and the impact and ensuring that actually we're not putting ourselves at un unease risk as opposed to managing the situation versus actually we just open the doors and let everybody help themselves. And unfortunately, that is that risk analysis part that people, A, should be maintaining, not normally, probably on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis. I think almost at the moment, it's almost on a daily to weekly basis. You have to assess the risk because the risks are increasing time and time again. And then what we can do is we can perhaps add some risks, remove some risks, see how we go. You've got to play around with it, with the control mechanisms to ensure that it works. But the important thing to remember is what mitigations do we have in place and what is the impact if we let those go? Is the impact completely disastrous or is it actually we'll add that to our kind of like loss, um, loss prevention kind of idea in that we accept that we have a loss and we'll make a loss on certain things, but it's far outweighed by those positive transactions and the loss is minimal as opposed to it being larger than the actual gain. And, and the, the other thing that, that you mentioned, which I find is, is very, a very interesting point, the point you make about the, the, the increase in, in uh, you know, bank account fraud and, and stepping in between payments, almost the, the schemes that the government have put in place have really caused a, you know, a cover for that kind of activity. Because if you have a situation where there are only certain financial institutions that are providing things like the bounce back loans and so on and so forth, and you have to get that from your bank, then businesses are naturally going to be changing their bank details. So there, there is a lot of um, probably a, a higher number of new instructions, legitimate new instructions flying around to mask uh, some of those, um, you know, incorrect um, or, or fraudulent um, instructions, as, as you've mentioned. 
And so it's a very challenging time. As we've said the whole way through this, Nick, is unfortunately every situation creates a new opportunity for the fraudsters. And you're quite right, here we are again, and it's around volume, isn't it? And it's the volume of everything we've talked about so far. And volume increases panic, and volume increases opportunity for the fraudsters. They realise that's going on, and therefore they're looking to target it. I actually saw something and posted it on LinkedIn um, just this week. Monzo Bank, interestingly enough, are actually undertaking some further checks when asking for money to be transferred from our accounts. And I'm hoping the other banks will jump on this too. So Monzo, we're undertaking a check. If, for instance, I say that I want to transfer X amount of money to Nick Curry, sort code X, account number Y, they will come back to you to say, the details you've provided do not belong to Nick Curry. Are you still happy this transaction has taken place? The onus, if you like, there's two sides to this. One is, what a great, what a great initiative. I'm actually giving some comfort to the customer that they might know whether they're making a fraudulent payment or otherwise. The other side of this is the build-up now of the banks passing that responsibility of these transactions back to the consumer as opposed to that person just expecting the bank to reimburse them regardless. By now telling you that the payment to Nick Corey isn't necessarily in the account of Nick Corey, are you still happy for that to be made? What a brilliant thing for me as a bank account holder with Monzo, but actually I now take that responsibility. If it ends up being a fraudulent transaction, I've agreed with the bank that yes, I was happy for that to go ahead. In saying that, I think back to our risk assessment and analyzing the risks, I think it's a great initiative by Monzo and I hopefully other banks will follow suit now and we can begin this process of actually data sharing amongst the banks, if you like, with regards to who owns accounts to ensure people are making the right payments. And hopefully that will lead, by preventing it, that will lead to a reduction in banking fraud that we all know now. Well, that's fascinating, Robert. Um, and, and obviously we know each other from the London Fraud Forum. You're the chairman of the London Fraud Forum. Um, fantastic event that we've enjoyed attending. Um, lots and lots of people in uh, a very, very big conference centre. Um, what's the Fraud Forum going to look like this year? Are we going to be online? I've been chair for the last five years. Um, this is a bit different, Nick. I've got to be honest with you. Um, I think we're still in treading water at the moment as to know whether the end of October we can actually physically hold our conference at the Guildhall, for which we've already got lined up the Commissioner of the City of London Police. Um, we already have an ex-MP um, to speak for us as well, and um, Mr Maud, which I'm really looking forward to. And we've got a couple of other people already lined up. As I say, we've got our partners in LexisNexis. We've got other sponsors on board. But you know what? Like everybody at the moment, we've got, a res we've got to have a resilience plan. We have contingencies. And if it isn't in person, it will be online. The Fraud Forum will certainly go ahead regardless. Well, I look forward to that. I always find it very, very uh, educational, very, very good, but also a great networking opportunity as well. Um, and just love you know, rubbing shoulders with other people that are in the industry, you know, fighting different kinds of fraud. So very, very um, great. great hopefully all those opportunities will still be there, Nick. We'll still have rooms whereby people can have breakouts. We still intend to have a networking event so people can still talk to each other. Um, and there is no reason why it won't go ahead, whether it be virtually or whether it be actually in person. And you'll note the new venue, the Guild Hall, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. It's this iconic a building. 
as we've held in previously at the Institute of Civil Engineers. So yes, no exciting times ahead for London Fraud Forum, but obviously changing times, webinars for something new. But you know what? I'm really looking forward to that on Thursday as well. Great stuff. Well, thanks very, very much for talking to us and um, giving us your thoughts on some of the threats that are out there, um, you know, l large scale and, and small scale as well. So, Robert, thanks very, very much for talking to us this, uh, this evening. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you very much all. Stay safe and please be aware in the procurement and fraud world. Just keep your guards up. Thank you very much indeed. Keep going. Thank you for listening to episode four of the SCARDI podcast. Stick with us on this journey as we, like many of you, are trying to navigate these very uncertain times. This is the SCARDI podcast.